Vacation starts with VA. One thing you'll love about your trip to Virginia is that you'll never have to settle for one thing. All that you love is all in one trip. Start yours at virginia.org. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how a 21-year-old student teacher and his roommates created Oregon Trail 50 years ago and never made a cent from their creation. Plus, a letter Catherine the Great wrote in favor of vaccinations just sold for $1.3 million. And for one night only, you can stay in the original Home Alone house. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Oregon Trail. The game, that is. The actual Oregon Trail got started around 1811, so we're about 200 years out there. But the historical simulator game got its start all the way back in 1971, five years before the rise of the personal computer and about a year before even TV-based computer games. The first version of it was on a teletype machine at Jordan Junior High School in Minneapolis and lasted for just five days. A teletype, by the way, looked like electric typewriters, kind of. There was no screen, and it would connect via a phone line to a mainframe computer usually miles away, and it could receive and send messages from that computer. And actually, the original, original version of the Oregon Trail was going to be a board game. But when 21-year-old student teacher Don Rawich, who conceived of the idea as a way to interest his students in a lesson on westward expansion, showed it to his roommate and fellow teaching student at Carleton College, that roommate, Bill Heineman, said they should make it an application for a computer. Heinemann, who taught math and had taken a few programming classes, got their other roommate and math teacher Paul Dillenberger on board, and within 10 days, they had the whole game ready to go for Rawich's students. Rawich had tried innovative lessons in the past. According to a recent article in Slate, he'd done things like writing and performing songs about Civil War battles on his guitar, dressing up with another teacher as Lewis and Clark and answering students' questions in character, and even organizing a mock trial for students that kicked off with one student being shot with a starter pistol. As Slate puts it, quote, "...the type of innovative pedagogy that most definitely would get you fired today." End quote. But none of that took off with his students like Oregon Trail. Quoting the 74 million, it was an instant hit. Students came to Rawish asking if they could play before or after class. Lines would form down the hall each morning as students waited for a chance to try again. For many, it was the first time they'd sat down in front of anything even resembling a computer. Because Rawich was able to reserve the teletype for just a week, he had to think creatively. So instead of letting students play individually, he had to combine them into groups of four or five. End quote. And just a reminder that when those kids were playing, it was just on a teletype. There was no screen, no graphics, no sound effects, literally just words showing up and describing the scenario to you. When you went on a mini-game, something Oregon Trail basically invented, like to go hunting, your success was judged on how quickly and accurately you typed words, like bang and blam. But regardless of which iteration of Oregon Trail you may have first played as a kid, 
text-only, MS-DOS, or on the Wii, most of us can point to a few reasons why it's so fun. You know, the subject matter is interesting enough, the decision-making and planning you have to do is just the right balance of challenging, and as frustrating as it was at times, dying of dysentery was just plain hilarious. Especially for those of us who encountered the game outside of school, at friends' houses, we didn't even really realize it was meant to be an educational game. But there was ample pedagogy behind it. Quoting again, At its most basic, the game helps teachers confront one of the biggest challenges in teaching history, says Paul Darvasi, a longtime Toronto high school teacher. Students have a very difficult time embodying the past, he said, but a good game like the Oregon Trail makes that happen immediately by dropping players into situations where their decisions matter. What's really interesting is that, obviously, when you're making decisions, you're deviating from historical realities, because history is set and done, he said. But in making that leap, players immediately begin to understand why historical figures made the decisions they made. It actually helps cultivate a historical mindset, he said, because players are wondering about subjects' motives. Why did they want to go out west? Why would they want to suffer? Why did they make these decisions? Why did they cross the river and not take a bridge? End quote. With all it had going for it, the Oregon Trail almost never made it beyond those five days at Jordan Junior High. Shortly after the Westward Expansion unit was over and the teletype machine had to be rented out to another classroom, Rawich and his roommates graduated college and left the schools they'd been student teaching at. A few years later, though, Rawich had started working at a nonprofit called the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, or MEC, who worked to bring educational software to schools all across the state. As the 74 million puts it, Minnesota at the time was a bit of a proto-Silicon Valley, as it was home to IBM, Univac, Control Data, and Honeywell. MEC was tapped into this, and also identified computers as useful tools for teaching students about any subject, not just about programming more computers. They also had a share library, where employees could submit programs they'd written for potential inclusion in the school's selections. As Rawich tells Slate, one Thanksgiving when he had a cold and nothing better to do, he brought home a portable teletype terminal and typed in the 800 lines of code that he'd printed from the original Oregon Trail three years before. Others at MEC were into it, and so it became available to any school with access to MEC's mainframe, and quite quickly became the organization's most popular title. Eventually, MEC created a for-profit arm to sell the Oregon Trail as well as other games, but it was Oregon Trail that accounted for a full third of their annual revenue. And Rawich, nor his co-creators and former roommates, ever saw a dime of it. It's not something they're spiteful about, though. They've never fought it, they just didn't really have any expectation to get paid at first, and no one even knew how much it would take off. Rawich says he didn't even realize how much the software market in general would take off. He published the code to the Oregon Trail in an article in Creative Computing in 1978, because it just seemed like the kind of thing to share. Ever since the game's 25th anniversary, however, they've been regularly recognized as the creators, brought out for events, interviewed by all kinds of media, and included in a special featurette that was on the 25th anniversary CD-ROM version of the game. As Rawich told Slate, quote, When you're an educator, you're encouraged to write and publish. Paul and Bill and I, when you get right down to it, we were teachers. We have the teacher mentality. And so to get rich off this would have been nice, but not as important as having donated something to the world of education. End quote. 
And one more miscellaneous note about the creation of the Oregon Trail. The 74 million points out that the game stood out in the early days for its sensitivity to Native Americans, which sounds wild in our contemporary context, but for the era, it was pretty remarkable that it at least didn't have the pioneers fighting with the Native Americans. And part of the reason for that is that Rawich had a lot of Native American students, so it was something that he actually thought about, unlike a lot of other media makers at the time. Though, as I mentioned back in May, the latest version of the Oregon Trail went much further towards inclusion, working with Native American historians to wipe the game of insensitive and inaccurate stereotypes, including the characters' dress, hairstyles, weaponry, speech, and names. Now, the Native Americans in the game are playable characters with more diverse roles and dignified storylines. And if after this you want to get your Oregon Trail fix, you can of course play that awesome new version, or I'll put a link in the show notes to an emulator for the 1990 version. And I also highly recommend the latest season of the TBS ensemble comedy show Miracle Workers, starring Steve Buscemi, Daniel Radcliffe, and Geraldine Viswanathan. This most recent series takes place on the Oregon Trail, and yes, it includes lots of dysentery. In all the discussion around vaccine mandates, one fact that's become much more common knowledge is that back in 1777, then-General George Washington ordered the entire Continental Army to be inoculated against smallpox. But he wasn't the only leader pushing for inoculations at the time. I mean, for one, part of what drove his decision was that most of the British Army was already inoculated against or immune to smallpox, so he needed to eliminate comparable weaknesses. Inoculations were widespread in Europe already. But another proponent leading her nation towards inoculation around the same time was Catherine the Great. She and her son were inoculated against smallpox in 1768, as well as many members of her court, in part due to her huge fear of the disease. It had infected her husband, killed the fiancé of one of her closest advisors, and likely affected many other people in her life. The inoculation back then wasn't a vaccine, though. Quoting the New York Times, At the time, people were inoculated using variolation, the practice of exposing people to material from an infected pustule of a patient with smallpox. The process was used for hundreds of years in India and China before being adopted in Europe. Enslaved people from Africa introduced the treatment in the United States. It is similar to, but distinct from, vaccination, which uses a less harmful version of a virus. Many people were wary of the practice which sometimes led to deaths or outbreaks of a mild form of smallpox. These concerns prompted Catherine to show her support for it. She was doing it as a way to show the Russian people that it was safe and it could keep this disease at bay, said Lynn Hartnett, an associate professor of history at Villanova University, end quote. And her efforts to reassure people of the safety and efficacy of inoculation are still being felt today. Yesterday, a letter she wrote in 1787 extolling the importance of inoculation to an army officer sold at auction for $1.3 million. Catherine wrote in the letter, quote, Such inoculation should be common everywhere, and it is now all the more convenient since there are doctors or medical attendants in nearly all districts, and it does not call for huge expenditure, end quote. While she was eventually a huge proponent, she was still nervous about the procedure at first. She provided the physician she hired with transportation, security, and an escape route in case the inoculation killed her and he had to make a run for it. 
But when she survived and recovered from the side effects, a whole dang holiday was declared to celebrate. Honestly, the side effects from both my second dose and booster shot were so rough that I feel like I deserve a national holiday to celebrate recovering. If only I were an 18th century Russian royal. When you're on the marketing team for a beloved movie or TV series that's getting a reboot these days, there are certain things you have to do. Recruit influencers to hawk new branded merchandise, strategically place old cast members in press situations that will create viral clips, and call up Airbnb to rent out the original filming location in a one-night-only stunt. Or at least that seems to be the case, since Airbnb has now done special rentals for the mansion from Fresh Prince, the house from Scream, and, okay, this wasn't a reboot, but they also curated a one-night-only experience at the last blockbuster, and now they've done it again with the original house from Home Alone. Located in Winneka, Illinois, the whole place has been tricked out to look just like the original movie before Kevin made a mess of things. You'll get to enjoy some Chicago pizza, microwavable Kraft mac and cheese, borrow Mr. McAllister's robe and aftershave, and even set up your own booby traps around the house. You'll also get a Home Alone Lego set to take with you, and we'll be able to watch the new Disney Plus reboot, Home Sweet Home Alone, which looks like it'll be fun enough if you can suspend your disbelief for 90 minutes that none of the security, smart home, or personal devices in that house would be able to get the parents in touch with the kid and solve the whole situation. But whatever, you don't have to like the new movie to enjoy this Airbnb experience. You just have to be the first person to click reserve when the single booking opens on December 7th at 2 p.m. Eastern. Because that's how Airbnb does these things. They are not sweepstakes or giveaways. You still have to pay to get to the Chicago suburbs and pay for the rental, although it's just $25, and there is only one possible booking. So good luck, you filthy animal. So I told you all about the 50 people stuck for three nights in an English pub with an Oasis cover band due to Storm Arwen. Now, staff and customers in northern Denmark were forced to stay overnight inside an Ikea after a bad snowstorm there. In addition to the six customers and two dozen IKEA staff, they also welcomed the staff of a next-door toy shop. Store manager Peter Elmos told the local news, quote, We slept in the furniture exhibitions and our showroom on the first floor, where we have beds, mattresses, and sofa beds. People could pick the exact bed they have always wanted to try, end quote. I mean, yeah, I kind of can't think of a better place to be stranded for the night. Plenty of beds, lots of space, and all the meatballs and lingonberries you can eat. Which, apparently, they did. Almost said they spent the evening watching TV and eating and just having a fun time together. You know, some people joke about getting so lost in Ikea that they won't be able to make it out before the store closes and they end up locked in, but by the sounds of it, at least at this Denmark location, that wouldn't be so bad after all. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at Virginia.org.